The new birth has always been a very important theme for those who identify themselves as evangelicals, and we would include ourselves in that. In the 20th century, the well-known preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said that to be born again, that is the crucial phrase, the key phrase of Christianity. And although it is given to evangelicals to be called born-again Christians, I want to stress today that this isn't something that we have uh, manipulated so that we are the born-again Christians, but anybody who is truly converted is born again of the Spirit of God. That is the teaching of the New Testament. I say that because my mind goes back, and I'm sure that your minds can go back to days in which you were described as a born-again Christian, as if there are Christians who are not born again. I think of uh, a flight from Moscow to London, and lining up for the flights, I noticed that there are all these people with divine teaching badges. And I thought, what is this? I'm getting on an unusual flight with everybody around me wearing these badges, divine teaching. And so I inquired, and they had laid on two flights flying from Moscow to London of all these Jehovah Witnesses coming from their worldwide convention in Moscow back to London following the convention. And it's sort of like the joke you might hear. Did you hear about the flight? in which there was seated in one row an imam, a leader of a kingdom hall, and an evangelical. Well, I was the evangelical. And so as I surreptitiously glanced at the man next to me to see if he was wearing a badge, divine teaching, I wanted to know who I was sitting next to. It turns out that he was a teacher in a kingdom hall. And I explained who I was, which didn't go down so well. And I was at the end of a long flight from Africa, and it was one of those occasions which I just shouldn't have opened my mouth. I was too tired. And so his son came to ask him a question, and the teacher in the kingdom hall sitting next to me said to his son in a rather disparaging way, hey, he's one of these born-again ones, as if there's such a Christian who is not born again. But when you go to the New Testament, you find that the only Christians there are are those who are born again of the Spirit of God. Growing up in the United Kingdom, hearing that there are 40%, 40% of the American population claims to be born again, it's somewhat important that we understand what we're talking about, because not only is this whole notion of being born again misunderstood, it's important that we understand it so that we can not only live as those who are born again, but can pray as those who are born again, who need a mighty movement of the Spirit of God so that others are born again. And so three general observations as we come to this theme today. The first is that the new birth is vital. Without it, we cannot be a Christian. Here Jesus says in verses 12 and 13 that the new birth is the necessary prerequisite of faith. 
that a person cannot believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot receive the Lord Jesus Christ unless first they are born again of God, born from above, born of the Spirit of God. The New Testament speaks in all these ways. In the 18th century, during the Methodist revival, they understood this. And the great preacher George Whitfield is reputed to have preached on the words of Jesus, you must be born again, 400 times. And somebody came to him and said, why are you forever preaching on this text? You must be born again. And his answer was quite simple, because you must be born again. So I want to say to you this morning, if you are yet to be born again, we're not simply dealing with my opinion. We're not simply dealing with a certain sect in Christianity. We are dealing with vital Christianity. As Jesus says, unless a person is born again, they will not see the kingdom of God. They will not enter into the kingdom of God. And so this is massively vital for you if you are yet to be born again. I had a friend during my uh, doctoral studies. Very nice person. The daughter of a theologian who was known in his day. And speaking to her about the vital nature of being born again. And her comment to me was this. Well, that's just your opinion as an evangelical. I said, no, it's not the opinion of me as an evangelical. It's the opinion of the Lord Jesus. Unless a person is born again, they cannot see, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The second general observation I'd like to say is that the new birth is metaphorical. What do I mean by that? I mean that we are dealing with a mystery, a mystery that is beyond our ability to speak of. And so God in order to help us speak of something that goes on in the realm of the Spirit that we cannot see, has given us a metaphor. It's really what we call a robust metaphor, what theologians call a model. In order for us to speak in terms which are familiar to us about something that is massively supernatural and unseen to the human eye. And so there's Nobody in this room who has not been born, where, as sometimes pro-lifers say, the lucky ones. And so we have this model of birth, which we have all experienced, although we can't remember, to speak of what has happened to us when God gave us new life. And this metaphor is given to us not so that we can say, well, you see, it's just a metaphor. Without the metaphor or the model, we cannot speak about what God has done by His power alone so that we may be called the children of God. And then the third general observation I want to make is that it's individual. Too often in the history of the church, two things have been confused. And this is why I want to jump off from where Pastor Bob has been preaching. 
he has rightly focused upon what Paul teaches about being an adopted son into the family of God. But when you go back into the annals of the church's theology, you find that there are two pictures which are confused. And oftentimes, Paul's thought of adoption is read into John 1 verse 12. But it's a separate picture. Paul is talking about being grown-up sons and daughters of God in the family of God, placed in the family of God. John is speaking about being born into the kingdom of God, a different picture. And what the two of them are saying is this, that our salvation is so rich that it cannot be encapsulated by one picture or the other picture. It needs both of them. And we may also think of what the epistle to the Hebrews says about being the sons of God, or what Peter says about being the sons of God as well. The young people probably won't remember this. And so let me explain to you how life used to be. We used to have these cameras, and you used to lift them up to your face and click. And then there was a little swivel thing on the side of the camera, and you rolled the film forward. And then you came to the end of the film. So you went down Walgreens, you went down some other pharmacy, and you handed in your film. And then the pharmacy phoned you up and said, your, your photographs are ready. And so you went down there and you picked up your photographs on paper. And so you look at the photographs and you're keen to see how your family snaps have come out. So you're shuffling them as you're walking out. And I'm sure that the adults here can remember the story or can remember the experience of shuffling through those photographs. And oh, what a pity. The film didn't wind forward well enough. And so you got two perfectly good pictures which are merged into one. And you can't make out the full picture of either of them. And that's what's been happening when theologians have muddied what Paul says about adoption as sons of God into the family of God and what John says about being born into the kingdom as children of God. And so Pastor Bob has been speaking explicitly about one picture from Galatians. And I want today to speak explicitly about the other picture from John's gospel and from John's writings. And so this is an individual picture that we're going to look at today. There are three key passages in the Johannine writings. The first we're going to look at this morning, John 1, 12 and 13. The third one we're going to look at tonight, 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 3. But this morning especially, we're going to draw from also the middle passage, John 3, 1 through 8. And by the end of the day, God willing, have a sense of what John is speaking about by examining the new birth this morning and by applying it this evening. Well, there are four aspects of the new birth to be gleaned this morning. And the first is the context of the new birth. To understand why this theme is so important, we need to understand it has two contexts. The first is the Old Testament context. We never look at the writings of the New Testament without setting them in the back, against the backdrop of what's written in the Old Testament. When you look at the Old Testament, you find that there were certain promises made 
of something grand that was going to happen in the realm of the Spirit to those who believe. And when you look at the Old Testament, first of all, you go to Deuteronomy 13, 30. And you find there that Moses speaks of the fact that those who are circumcised in the flesh, in other words, they've entered the covenant community, have the promise that they may know the circumcision of their hearts. In other words, have the evil of their hearts cut away. And so we read in Deuteronomy 36, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. What have we been told? We're being told that being a member of the covenant community is not enough because it does not come natural to us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our will. We need our hearts circumcised. And another picture that we find in the New Testament then is given to us by Ezekiel. That God will cleanse our hearts. He will soften our hearts. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. Ezekiel 11, 9 to 10. We read for our call to worship another text along those lines, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. You see the point that God is making, even from old covenant times, it was never his point of view, never his point of view, that all it takes to be a Christian is to be visibly connected to a Christian community. No, no, something radical needs to happen. We need our hearts circumcised. We need the evil cut away. We need our hearts softened. They are hearts of stone by nature. They need to be made hearts of flesh. Our hearts are unclean by nature. They need to be cleansed. The Spirit coming like water, being poured out upon the church, poured out upon the individual, so that although we are unclean by nature, through the new birth, we can be cleansed. That's the Old Testament context. But then as we come into the New Testament context, as given to us here in John 1, we find that our situation by nature is even more dire. We're not simply like stone. We're not simply unclean, but we are in darkness. Notice what uh, John writes in verse 4. In Him, the Word was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Here's our plight. By nature, we enter into the physical birth, the physical experience of life, and we enter into this context, this atmosphere of darkness, and the darkness is not simply around us, the darkness is within us. And so when you put together the Old Testament context, the New Testament context, we begin to see why the new birth is so important. With hearts of stone, hearts that are unclean, we are in darkness. And it is only the power of God can change our circumstances, can change our standing, can change our natures. And the remarkable thing is when we come to John's writings and we come specifically to these passages where the new birth is spoken about, Jesus is not speaking to those who are irreligious, who never darken the doors of the church. Jesus is speaking on the one hand 
to the likes of Nicodemus and will come to him, the teacher in Israel. And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you are, to be a child of God, to be a child of the kingdom, you need to be born again. You need a new life. You need a new nature. Truly, truly, Jesus went on to say to Nicodemus, I say to you, unless you are born again, you shall not enter into the kingdom. So I want to say to you, if you've never made a profession of faith, may well be that you're born again, but you're yet to be obedient in coming forward and professing with your mouth that you are saved. But it may well be that you've never been born again. And it may well be that you are in the secrecy of your own mind saying, I'm going to take the easy option. I'm going to be as religious as I can. I'm going to be as churchy as I can. And hopefully that will substitute for what Jesus is saying, I need to be born again. And Jesus is saying, you will never become as religious as Nicodemus. You know, my, my father used to tell us this <laughs> growing up. We thought we went to church a lot. We went to Sunday morning, nine miles each way. And then we had quick lunch. We drove nine miles each way to Sunday school in the afternoon. Then we came home, drove nine miles each way to church in the evening, every week. And sometimes we would groan as we're getting in the car. My father would remind us that the Pharisees went to church 21 times a week. Three times a day. And yet Jesus says to Nicodemus, no matter how religious you are, you cannot, you do not have the power to transform your heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. You do not have the power to take hold of an unclean heart with which you were born and make it clean. You do not have the power to wash yourself. And so... There is then the context of the new birth. But here in verses 12, in the first half of verse 13, we notice secondly the privilege of the new birth. God's answer to our inability to overcome our natural hardness, uncleanness, and darkness. And our want of desire to have a soft heart. Our want of desire to be clean. Our want of desire to live in the light is answered by the granting of of the new birth. And just as a baby comes through the birth canal and enters into life, so it is that the new birth gives us entrance into two wonderful privileges which are mentioned here. The first is the right to be called a child of God. The right, the word can mean also authority, is not simply to say that I am a child. It is to say specifically that I am a child of God. And so as the Johannine writings unfold, it becomes apparent that those who are the children of God are also children of the kingdom. So what does that mean? It means that the children of God are royal children. Now, to go back to my home country, which is an easy illustration in the sense that they have royalty, they have monarchy. Every other child in Britain, typically, does not have to justify, vindicate the fact 
that they are children of their parents. Yes, there are paternity suits and all that. I get that. But when it comes to the children, say, of Prince Charles, William and Harry, and who it is who is going to enter into the inheritance of the monarchy, who it is who's going to sit one day upon the throne, it is massively important that everybody knows that William, second in line after Charles to the throne, has the right, has the authority one day to sit upon the throne. And so Jesus is saying, this is the first privilege of being born again, begotten by God as a child of God, as a child of the kingdom, that we have nothing of ourselves, and yet God is ready to give us everything. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about adoption. He's talking about the right to be a royal child born into the kingdom. And the second privilege that belongs to the children of God is the family resemblance. This is what John has in mind. You see, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is creating this model so that we can learn that if you are a Christian, you are known by the family resemblance. That people around us can say, now that is a child of God. That is a child of the king, he or she. And so the verb used here for being born of God, it's genao. And you know, we get the word genes, genetics from that. And so what we're being told in effect is that those who are born again of God, those who are born again of the Spirit of God, those who are born into the kingdom become royal children, they have the genes of God. They have His genetics. And so although when a, a person first becomes a Christian, they're like a baby and sometimes you, you can't tell babies apart. They look pretty similar. Oh, Parents, no doubt, if you took their baby away from them, they would, they had very strong inclinations as to which is their baby. But as the baby grows and develops, he gets taller, gets more mature. As he looks, you say, ah, you can tell to whom that child belongs. I have a photograph at home. All four of us sitting on the sofa for our family photograph. We look like peas in the pot. And so you go through primary school and the end of the school year comes and then you, you go up to the next class and the teacher says to you, oh, I can tell which family you come from. I tell it from the jaw. Believe it or not, they said, I tell it from the black hair. I can tell there's a family resemblance. And so it is for those who are born again of the Spirit of God, born into the kingdom of God. We have the privilege of belonging to God the King, but we also have the privilege of the family resemblance. We are born of God. Thomas Chalmers described his regeneration in a very famous way. Thomas Chalmers was a churchman in 19th century Scotland, who lived from 1780 to 1847. You can read about him. The whole city came to a standstill for his funeral. 
And this was his testimony. You see, he was a minister in the Church of Scotland. But he was ministering in a day of what we call moderatism. Where people were more interested in science and literature and language than they were in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as a minister, he would come to church, he would preach his sermon on the Sunday, and then he would do his science experiments on the side, he would look at literature, etc., etc. He was a moderate. He never got too excited about the Christian faith. And then there was a period in his life where he came close to death, and he was lying on his bed for some time. And while he was lying on his bed, God came powerfully to him, regenerated him. That's the word that Jesus uses, the word that Paul uses. John uses a picture, the new birth. And as he got better from his sickness and as he rose, newborn, now a child of God, to preach the gospel, there was a fire in him. There was a power about him. There was a delight in the word of God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ that put science in its place, that put the literature in its place, that put languages in its place. And this is how he described the new birth. As he reflected upon what had happened to him, he said there was the expulsive power of a new affection. It wasn't that science was wrong. It wasn't that literature was wrong. It wasn't that languages were wrong. But now his heart, through the new birth, had been so possessed of the Lord Jesus Christ that all he could do was preach the gospel and try to reach the masses of Scotland with the gospel in their poverty because of the expulsive power of this new affection. You see the privilege standing as the child of God and a family resemblance filled with the Spirit of God. But thirdly, we come on to the misunderstanding of the new birth as we enter further into verse 13. This new birth is not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. The tendency of man, you see, is to attribute the privileges with God to anyone but God. And so John here says, first of all, the new birth is not of blood. You don't come into the kingdom as a privilege of descent. That is what the Jews thought. Remember John 3. Nicodemus, Jesus describes in verse 7, as the teacher of Israel. And he comes to Jesus by night. And he thinks he's stacked up behind him with all these privileges of spiritual descent. That's enough to get him into the kingdom. And Jesus speaks to him. And cuts right across it and says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He's saying to Nicodemus, in effect, it doesn't matter how much you know. It doesn't matter how great your religiosity. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter about your descent. And the same is true for us who are born and brought up in the church. It doesn't matter for eternity, whether your father's a pastor. It doesn't matter for eternity whether your father's an elder. It doesn't matter whether your father or your mother is a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader. It doesn't matter for eternity. It's an individual, personal thing that we personally need to be born again. Not of blood, not of physical descent. And then it's not of the will of the flesh. You say, okay, I get it. A Christian upbringing cannot make me a Christian. 
So I tell you what I'll do. I'll become a Christian for myself. In other words, I personally will orchestrate it that I am a child of God. But there's a problem. You see, the person who has yet to be born again has neither the desire to be a child of God, nor the ability to make himself or herself a child of God. And so Jesus says, or John, Jesus through John, it's not of the will of the flesh. This is the great confusion of our day, even within evangelicalism. We think we must do something to be born again. I used to be on a TV program for eight years, asked the pastor, and this was one of the questions that came in. What must I do to be born again? And so this whole panel of friends, I want to treat them like friends. I was the token reform minister on that panel, one of three of us who used to come, but not at the same time. And the person phones in, what must I do to be born again? And so the panelists went down the panel. Well, you see, you must repent. You must believe. And it came to me. Oh, dear, once more, I'm in the minority. Let me tell you, dear friend, there's nothing you can do to be born again. But once you're born again, you will receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You will turn from your sins unto God. You will be a child of God. It's not of the will of the flesh. It is of the sovereign, free grace of God to bring his people to life through a new birth. And then thirdly, it's not of the will of man. John is referring here in terms of the idea of birth to the procreative urge of a male. He is saying that just as a man cannot create a baby as and when he wants to, neither can we, the children of God, make others Christian as and when we want to. We cannot will others to be born again. This is where our maintenance praying, praying for our ailments, praying for our afflictions, praying for our trials and troubles, needs to be balanced out with what we call frontline praying. When Pastor Bob preaches here, to storm the gates of heaven and to say to God, please God, do what I cannot do Do what Pastor Bob cannot do. Do what you alone can do. And that is to make my unregenerate family member, my unregenerate neighbor, my unregenerate visitor to the church, make them born again because Pastor Bob can't do it. You say, I don't know how many of you like a real sport like soccer. As I said to Pastor Bob the other day, the game where they don't wear tights and crash helmets. <laughs> I keep hearing this, this phrase. It's a results game. It's a results game. And if the manager doesn't get the results, he gets fired. 
And in the English Premiership, you can start counting as the season goes on the number of managers who've been fired because they haven't got the results. And sometimes we treat pastors like that. We say, if they don't get the results, they need to go. We need to bring in a pastor who will get the results. And what we do is we deny the doctrine of the new birth. We deny the doctrine of regeneration, which teaches us that no minister on earth can produce solid, tangible results. What it needs is a congregation with the minister to storm the gates of heaven and to say, please, God, do what you alone can do. It's not of blood. It's not of the will of the man. It's not of will of flesh. This is why Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher of the 19th century, who died in 1892, as he used to walk up the steps to preach, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, I can guarantee you this. When Pastor Bob comes to preach, literally or metaphorically, he is climbing these steps going, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because if this people believe that I can convert a single soul, I cannot convert a single soul. And nor can you. Don't put pressure on Pastor Bob for something that you cannot accomplish either. And so that brings us on to the fourth point this morning, very briefly. What does John say here? He says there's a miracle of the new birth. It is of God. John means that the new birth is of God's will. The wonderful thing in John's writings is that God has a son, and he uses a Greek term for it, quios. But to distinguish God's natural-born son from these sons who are begotten after him, he uses the term techna, meaning children, and he distinguishes them. But the amazing thing in John's writings is that although God has a son in whom he is well-pleased, yet he brings to birth millions of born children of God, born children of the kingdom, because it is his will to do so. And sometimes as Calvinists, we come at this so wrong. And we say, well, I don't know who's God's going to save. I can't go and witness because I only know of two people who were born again. I'm not sure about the other person. And this is the amazing miracle that God of his power, of his will, is bringing people from time zone to time zone today to new birth. They're born into the children, into the kingdom of God, born children of God. That it's not by your persuasive techniques or mine that we can get people to profess that they're Christian. But what we do is we storm the gates of heaven and we say, God, it is your will. We see it in Scripture to bring to new birth those of every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people. And you are doing this, and you are doing this in mighty ways in this world. You are doing it in places where the gospel has been hindered for centuries. You are doing it in Iran. You are changing the color of the map in India. You can do it in Coopersville. You can do it in Marne. God's will. It's of God's will. But then it's of God's power. And we compare then what we have here in John 1, 12 and 13 with what is taught us in John 3, 1 through 8. And Jesus, as he's speaking to Nicodemus, says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. And then he goes on to describe the Spirit like the wind. 
And there are two points of commonality here. The first is that as the wind is mysterious in the way in which it blows, so is the Spirit. And as the wind goes wherever the wind wants to go, no human tells the wind where it can and cannot go, so the Spirit goes wherever the Spirit wants to go in accordance with the will of the Father and of the Son. And so it is of God's power that people are born again. It's a wonderful, wonderful teaching. It's a miracle. So as we close this morning, the words of the 19th century scholar John Duncan come to mind. Though we are passive in our regeneration, we are not to be passive about it or after it. And so I close with a word to the born again. What a responsibility we have to pray to God for the wind to blow. The greatest way in which we can serve our pastor is to pray as he ministers the word for the wind to blow. Don't put pressure on him to produce results that only the Spirit of God can produce. You're doing the devil's work. If you cannot pray for Pastor Bob, if I cannot pray for Pastor Bob, the last thing we need to be doing is criticizing him. We storm the gates individually, but as a church family, and say, do what Pastor Bob cannot do. Blow, wind, blow. I pray that that would be the experience not only in the church here, but in many churches today. Coming off a plane in Liverpool, driving past a dilapidated church in Liverpool, the scaffolding of the construction company up, another church closing down in Britain. And here is the irony of the slogan of the construction company. Regeneration, as a biblical term, means born again. Regeneration for a new generation. How ironic that that was put on a church that was closing down. And this is what we need in our day, regeneration for a new generation. It's not going to come by celebrity pastors. It's not going to come by people who think they're self-anointed. It's going to come by God rending the heavens, using human instruments to preach the new birth. And then a word to those who are yet to be born again of the Spirit. The first proof of your being born again from above is in your willingness to receive Jesus Christ and your taking hold of Him. Listen to these verses again. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born. In other words, it is those who are born again who receive Christ. It is those who are born again who take hold of Christ. It is those who receive Christ and those alone who do so who have the right or the authority to be called or to call themselves children of God. Don't fall for this cultural Christianity. We're all Americans. We're all the children of God. You hear this in the political domain. I've heard John McCain say it. I've heard others say it. I heard Margaret Thatcher say it in Britain. Well, we're all British. We have this heritage, and therefore we're children of God. Nonsense. 
unless we are born again, we cannot be called the children of God. But those who are born again, most certainly will and most certainly do receive Christ. And so let me say to you as a close, don't start philosophizing about a mystery that you cannot understand. Do what you are called to do. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and you can go out of here. A child of God, a child of the kingdom, born again of the Spirit of God. Now this evening, God willing, we'll come on to look at what that means for those of us who are born again. But may God bless these thoughts. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so privileged to glorify the power of your sovereign grace. We acknowledge that none of us has been able to make ourselves children of God. That you have not only sent your Son as light into the darkness, but you have sent your Spirit to grant us new natures, to start life again. And Father, we are glad. We pray, O oh God, for Pastor Bob as he brings your word each week, that you would so anoint him by the Holy Spirit that he would be able to preach in a way that brings glory and honor to you. We thank you for him. We pray that you would work mighty miracles through his ministry here. That those, as of yet, with hearts of stone, unclean, in the darkness, may come into the light as it's found in Jesus. Blow, wind of the Spirit, blow, we pray. Help us to balance our maintenance praying with our frontline praying that the kingdom of Jesus Christ would spread in our midst and from our midst. Glorify your name, we pray, and we'll give you the praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.